For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast. On the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. guys listen uh-huh. we'll be talking a lot of smack but i think what's important before we start today's episode uh-huh. we each name one thing that we love and and cherish about white culture choose something think- no choose something what do you love what do you celebrate what what celebrates white people i, I celebrate them. kalachis the uh, the Fidget spinners. I don't know. What the hell? What? I have no idea. Comic-Cons. Okay. That's yeah, so right. finally some positivity besides just never being arrested for a crime and always being president. Uh, <laughs> all right. This is the last podcast on the left. I am Ben Kissel. That's Marcus Parks. And I don't think I introduced us last time, as a matter of fact. Uh, I, I bet you didn't. That. I don't think you did. I don't know. We're sitting here. We're in my Los Angeles apartment. Yeah. It's hot. My feet are up. I can smell my own balls because I'm great. wearing I'm wearing like gym shorts because it's too hot in here. I'm three inches away from you. It's a really great experience. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get on here. We got Oklahoma City Part Four. A lot more to get to uh, in the Timothy McVeigh saga. So in September of 1994, President Bill Clinton approved the 10-year assault rifle ban, and with that, the gathering of the explosives and components needed for the April 19th bombing truly began. Now, in conspiratorial thought, let's take a little break from rationality for a second. I mean, honestly, Uh guys... We're always so rational and this is, logical. Uh huh. That's that's how, exactly how I describe you. Now, <laughs> would that maybe be the conspiratorial arm of being like basically they make a gun ban and that's what allows them to send in covert agents into oh. the different white nationalist groups in order to spur revolutionary attitude? Basically, they create the legislature and then create the backbone of sending in sheep. No, yeah, do you have any idea what even, it takes to pass a fucking bill? No. <laughs> I never watched there's a Cool House Rock. Yeah, there's a cartoon that explains it. This whole thing is ridiculous, though. It got so t- totally blown out of proportion. The Brady Bill was uh, kind of wrapped up into this. They weren't going after weapons that were already sold as assault rifles. They weren't going into people's homes and taking them. They were just putting a halt on the sale of assault rifles. Just like, you know what? We got enough assault rifles. So many of you them. You guys can sell assault rifles to each other. That's totally cool. You can do that whenever and wherever you want. We're just not going to make any more of them. If I was president, I would also put a 10-year ban on pornography. We're good. We have enough. <laughs> what is wrong? with you we have so much what are you talking about this town los angeles will grind to a halt (laughs) i'm sorry never mind northern california it's off the table i saw a gangbang video this morning that i'd never seen before and it made me happy congrats well this is this is that was an immediate democracy (laughs) thank you for the town hall i have now changed my position now there is a very interesting connection to elohim city concerning september of 1994 the same month that the assault rifle ban was signed the only two recorded instances of mcveigh being near Elohim City was a ticket in the fall of 1993 
Not too long after McVeigh met Strassmeyer, hmm. and a night McVeigh spent in a motel just over the Arkansas state line near Elohim City on September 12, 1994, the day before the assault rifle ban was signed into law. Can you imagine being the poor uh, wo- woman that or a man that works at that hotel that has to clean up the room after Timothy McVeigh? Every single time, <laughs> just having to deal with all the different hair clippings from yeah. keeping his brush cut tight. <laughs> I feel like they they actually go and like untuck the sheets a little bit. They're like, this man must be a sociopath. The <laughs> sheets are so tucked. I think he's the kind of guy that eats the soap, thinking it's food. <laughs> so in October of 1994, McVeigh took over a storage locker in Harrington, Kansas, which Terry Nichols had planned to use to store furniture. And McVeigh started loading it up with all the material needed for the bomb. Now, Tim, I definitely, you know, I, I give you an inch. And you took a mile, mm-hmm. and when it comes down to it, where am I going to put these duvets? <laughs> I have piles and piles of duvets. I have I have a levee chair. I forgot what that's called, the laison, where uh. you lay down it so you look impressive, impressively bored. <laughs> I have one of those chairs, a chaise lounge. I like that. You know, what if we fill it with ammonia nitrate instead? Whatever you want, Tim. I guess you're my boss now. I would love to see that uh, this storage locker opened on Storage Wars. <laughs> Just be like, what do we got there? Oh, all the makings of a bomb. Um... <laughs> Close up the storage. <laughs> Can we close up the shed? So the nuts and bolts materials McVeigh and Terry acquired from a quarry robbery. The fuel came from racing tracks and hobby stores who both sold nitromethane for different reasons. Cool. Of course, oh, not, ra- not to make homemade bombs? <laughs> hmm, interesting. <laughs> no, racing tracks sold it for nitro and hobby stores sold it for model airplanes. Oh, hmm. make it all, making model airplanes, they say. <laughs> there is a hidden demographic of sniffers and huffers, and they're all in the model airplane business. So the ammonium nitrate was purchased in eight different locations with McVeigh and Nichols stopping off at every feed store they could find to eventually amass 4,000 pounds of the stuff. Hmm. And after the two had spent a couple months gathering up all this material, Nichols started getting a little suspicious about the whole stockpiling explosives things as he said he thought at this point that the whole thing was just kind of a lark. Because honestly, it started with his obsession with Pop Rocks and I, I thought at that point, I was like, I don't Put even it like them because soda. it, it yeah. hurts my gums. I don't like it, but he loved it. It started with Pop Rocks and then immediately he killed a dog. <laughs> with a hand grenade. What do you think? Terry Nichols just tried to wash his hands of all this, right? Um, he had to know something was going on. Of here. course. Yeah, he, he knew something was going on, but Nichols uh, was was two things. He was uh, a coward, of course, yes. uh, and he was also very good at denial. Mm. Well, they're also very private. Yes. The, all of these guys are very much so that weird sovereign citizen thing of like, you know, like, don't, don't, don't remember anything about me. Right. Almost. Mm. Now, when Nichols confronted McVeigh, Tim came clean about the plan, and when Nichols said he wouldn't have any part of it, Nichols said that McVeigh pulled his jacket back and showed him the 45 in his shoulder holster. Nichols said McVeigh told him that if he didn't go through with it, McVeigh would kill his son, his brother, and his mother. This, Nichols said, was his main motivation for helping Tim all the way to the end. I don't know about that. Is that a threat or a promise, Tim? Why don't you kill somebody that doesn't make me sad all the time? That's what I'm thinking. Just flip it and be like, here are their home addresses. Perfect. Thank you. And in order to pay for the whole bombing operation, McVeigh said Nichols was going to have to procure the money by robbing McVeigh's old friend from the gun circuit, Roger Moore, whom McVeigh referred to as Bob from Arkansas. Hmm. Because Bob Miller was the name uh, that Roger Moore would use at gun shows. Because a lot of times these gun show guys, they didn't use their real names there. They so, didn't trust each other. It's like how Robert De Niro, if you know him in a movie and you have to like do some kind of talk about him uh, like on the side for like BTS or kind of interview, you call him Bobby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So they're going to rob their friend. <laughs> they're going to rob so, their friend. Now, the motivations here are actually a little yeah. unclear. McVeigh said that he learned Roger's security system while he was there visiting and that Roger deserved it because he was a plastic patriot who would turn his stockpile over to the FBI without a fight. Now, it mm. is very possible that Roger knew the whole thing was coming and that the robbery was set up in order to conceal where the funding was coming from for the bombing, a kind of like backwoods money laundering type operation. Kind of like him putting a basically getting a hotel room next to Elohim City so he can go stay there without there being any sort of trail leading him over there. Because he can say, oh, look, here, I, I was actually staying at a hotel. Mm-hmm. I do love it when you know when you know the person robbing you. We're just like, Terry, what are you doing? <laughs> Put the gun down. But now, was this a part of Operation Clean Sweep? It no. Was, so no, no, he no. just gave up his guns? No, he didn't give up his guns. McVeigh said that if Roger Moore had his property raided, then Roger Moore would just give up his guns without a fight. But he, he said he was a They plastic. speculated that. Yeah, they speculated. Oh, uh, a poser. Yeah, he was oh, okay. exactly. He was a poser because McVeigh thought that if you had a bunch of guns and the government stormed your property, then you needed to fight to the death. And commit for suicide. Those guns. Yeah, that's the idea. That's see. that's a real patriot does. Yeah. Yeah. They stupidly die. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why some people think that Roger Moore was forewarned about it and was even in on this robbery was because for months afterwards, McVeigh and Moore exchanged a series of bizarre cryptic letters, even though it was obvious that McVeigh was behind the whole thing. And Moore made sure to say that Timothy McVeigh was behind behind the robbery can't loudly my and often. best friend, <laughs> Timothy McVeigh, came all the way to Arkansas just to steal my gold. Because you know he kept his money on and gold. Oh, oh, of course. No, he did, but he stole a bunch of gold, a bunch of silver, and a lot of precious jewels. <laughs> like what is this, emeralds. the Goonies? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about this the other day. At the end of the Goonies, these kids think that, like, just emeralds and rubies yeah. are, are good. Like, can you be not be just... It's difficult to fence these So, uh, that Snickers bar will be a dollar twenty. I only have pirate's money. <laughs> One sapphire. It's a... It's a marble. <laughs> no, in one of those cryptic letters, Moore wrote to McVeigh nine days before the bombing, Moore wrote, Plan is to bring the country down and have a few more things happen. The important thing is to make it as effective as possible. And Moore mm. signed the letter Bob and wrote, Burn in uppercase letters next to his signature. And when the FBI questioned Moore, he said that he was just trying to lure McVeigh to his ranch so McVeigh could be arrested for the robbery. Because that's how it always works. A bunch of heroes. Burn. Wow. Bring your raccoon net. (laughs) It's a W that yours starts with. What? Yeah, it's It's a W. It's a W. It's a A Y. Y. (laughs) Jesus Christ. What is wrong with you? Why? Are you with running a W, for, are however? You from, are you from Elohim City? Uh, are you running for Brooklyn? No. You Brooklyn know what? Bureau President, you cannot spell it, the word you. It has been a long week <laughs> stuck in traffic. And the LA Sun does take your brain cells out. It absolutely does. But I honestly, Tim, point. when you do come into town, bring your raccoon net because it is, it, it might, my whole fucking compound is infested. And I'm not doing cute racist raccoon. I mean, real dog shaped guy raccoon. It's like buffalo in here. And as for the effective as possible line, more so he just couldn't remember what he meant by that. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, he's like, yeah. So, so the FBI came and asked, so like, so what did you mean by this line? It must be as effective as possible. He's like, you know what? I just don't remember. Huh? And Honestly, it, I was talking about minoxidil. Isn't that wild? <laughs> and as shitty of an answer as that was, the FBI totally believed him and set him free without any follow-up. Now, it could be that Moore, who had much more experience with explosives than either McVeigh or Nichols, had more to do with the plot than anyone is letting on. 
except Terry Nichols. Nichols told investigators fairly recently that a pack of the explosive component kinestics could be found on his property with Bob Moore's fingerprints on them. The Hmm. FBI did find the kinestics, but they didn't test them for fingerprints for another three years. And after those three years, the prints were deemed unreadable. Moore also claimed to be a protected government witness at one point, but on the other hand, a lot of these guys claim to be protected government witnesses. Because it's well, a fun idea. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, Strassmeyer said that same thing. But we do, that is how the FBI gets these people. They flip them and, uh, and force them to rat on other well, people. Maybe so they, it's possible. Honestly, they probably were fishing. Well, they are probably yeah. asking him to see what he knew. See if he'd be willing to flip, and he'd be like, no, no, no. But uh, secretly oh, a couple of wigs. maybe he could. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's actually oddly plausible to think that these different government agencies who weren't talking to each other at all had so many protected government witnesses out there that these guys were just yes-anding each other and carrying this shit out. Whoa. In fact, one ATF agent told a story about how the ATF and the FBI were supposed to get together to share information about Elohim, Elohim City. And according to the agent, the two agencies met in a conference room, had small talk, and left without mentioning Elohim City once, all because each agency didn't trust the other one. And if there was a big bus mm. to be had at Elohim City, that specific agency wanted the credit for it. Like Thank this- you so much for having us over, FBI. Couldn't help but notice in this conference room you have so many squeaky chairs. Nice to see you, CIA. Man, these chairs are squeaky. <laughs> would be a shame if someone came in here and oiled some of these squeaky chairs. These chairs could use some oil. <laughs> because the squeaking I'm hearing is damn near unacceptable. Man, this is a heck of a meeting. Right? <laughs> this is, it's kind of fun. Kind of fun. Can you feel a weird, like, it's like tension. Are you playing Genesis? Yes. <laughs> yes, I got it from when I was a child. It's my game gear. <laughs> No, this sort of interdepartmental rivalry was the exact same behavior that led to 9-11 just six mm. years later when the CIA and the FBI weren't talking to each other. Nothing was learned from Oklahoma City by these people, and thousands of people died because of it. Do you ever think of the paperwork, though, Marcus? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, how much paperwork? The, the, so much they avoided. They saved the trees. Mm-hmm. I love that the CIA and the FBI were like that comic strip, the Lockhorns, just never getting along. <laughs> it's really funny in the strip, but then in reality, it leads to domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. Now, after the robbery was done, Nichols decided the heat was getting a little too high, so he fucked off to the Philippines with Marifay for a couple of months, even though Nichols was terrified that Marifay's ex boyfriend, Jojo Angelito Florida, was going to come calling. Hey, do you see how many baskets of ripe papayas I have? Where is my sweet, sweet Marife? I would have loved to see that fight. Him just slapping him with sashes and throwing papayas at him. No, no. Just fuck my wife. I'll let you fuck my wife, please. When McVeigh realized that Nichols had left the country, he turned to my Michael Fortier to help him out. Michael, my best friend Michael. How do we never see each other? <laughs> no, 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 not Jojo Angelito Florida. <laughs> Timothy McVeigh turned Uh-oh. to Michael Fortier. Uh-oh. Jesus Christ. Jojo is my favorite name ever on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> Jojo Angelito Florida? Yeah, it's just a lot of fun. <laughs> and McVeigh, once he hooked back up with Michael Fortier, he laid out the entire bombing play for the Fortier family, even going so far as to show Fortier's wife how he planned to position the barrels in the truck using 15 cans of soup as a visual aid. Now, tell me, tell me, now, are these cans 
gonna actually be filled with soup? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, ammonia, ammonian, ammonian, ammonian nitrate. So um, you can't even say the name. How am I supposed no. to trust you? You're gonna take this building down. I'm thinking we just use soup, and we slowly kill them with sodium. The world's biggest soup bomb. <laughs> So in December of 1994, McVeigh and Fortier went to the Alfred P. Mura building to case the joint. McVeigh, despite his many protests to the opposite, was seen inside the Mura building that day. And not only that, McVeigh actually talked to one of the women who worked at the daycare specifically about mm. the daycare center. What McVeigh, a scumbag. McVeigh said that he had two young kids and was planning to move into the area. He asked no questions about the daycare operations themselves and was only interested in the layout, where the entrances mm. were, where the exits were, and he was very interested in the plate glass windows next to the infant's nap area. If someone that looks like Timothy McVeigh says they have two young kids... Go find them yes. and return them to their parents. Now, according to the woman he talked to, McVeigh kept repeating, there's just so much glass over and oh. over and over again. Can I just ask you, can I, can I just see an infant? Because I just want to feel how soft it is. Creepy question, Tim. Is it? Yes. Well, I, I mean, I obviously have two kids of my own, so I know how what, soft they what are. are the name, what's the name of your children? Ram Jam <laughs> and mm-hmm. Daycare <laughs> Center. Uh. <laughs> But as this woman was talking to Timothy McVeigh, her fiancé showed up. So McVeigh hid behind a corner and ran away through the back door. There's also a witness that puts Strassmeyer there with him. On that day. On that day that Strassmeyer was around. And again, the way you can tell that, uh, that fucking Strassmeyer was there was that they said there was a bucktoothed man with a German accent. And it's very difficult to miss. I right. feel like if you are a fucking, uh, you're an agent, you're trying to hide it from, trying to hide your identity from people, you wear a bandana. Yeah. Or you change your teeth. Or you at least pretend to have another accent. I do it all the time. It just it it just seems like a stupid Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> so we had the German was there. I mean, it's definitely For- closer to Bottle Rocket than Pulp Fiction. Yes, that's true. So the German was there. Fortier was there, and McVeigh. All mm-hmm. three of them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we d- I mean, we don't know for sure if Strassmeyer was there, but we definitely know McVeigh and Fortier were there. Now, the only reason why this daycare center encounter wasn't introduced into trial was because that witness confused that incident with another incident with a weirdo that happened in March when it, the FBI knew McVeigh was in Arizona. But this visit coincided completely with Michael Fortier's testimony that they were in Oklahoma City in December of 1994. And this woman gave this statement prior to that being public knowledge. Hmm. 1994 is also when a couple of characters named Dennis Mahon and Mm. Carol Howe walk onto the Elohim City, Oklahoma City stage. Finally. This is their Mm -hmm. star moment. (laughs) It just gets dumber. Andreas Strassmeyer was friends with a white supremacist named Dennis Mahon, who was considered to be so dangerous by the UK and Canada that they barred him from entering their countries on the grounds that he was an international terrorist. But honestly, he just did not like the Toronto Raptors. (laughs) I don't think they were around yet. Mahan is a former Imperial Dragon of the KKK and is also the leader of the White Aryan Resistance, a.k.a. War, in Tulsa. Which is around still. Yeah, definitely still around. He is also on camera saying that one day there will be a 100-foot-tall statue of Timothy McVeigh, celebrated patriot. Wow, a 100-foot statue. Wow. Wow. Now, John Millar, son of Robert Millar and the current patriarch of Elohim City, considers Dennis Mahon to be a friend. Oh. Good. Now, let's hear a little from John Millar about his thoughts on people like Dennis Mahon and their beliefs. 
I, I would say I don't realize why being a racialist makes you a hater. You have people today, they'll raise quarter horses, and they're very peculiar with each quarter horse and how they, you know, breed them in order to get a show horse or with, you know, bulldogs or Pomeranians or any other animal like that. So in order to, you know, save the integrity of each species, it's important that they stay within their own group. And that's the way we feel and what we feel the scripture teaches like that. Yeah, the scripture of Looney Tunes, the book of <laughs> Elmer Fudd. I don't want to malign people with, with interesting voices. You but can't absolutely I, malign his fucking ass. He's got a shitty voice. He sounds like an idiot. I've never heard the term racialist before. Waso- which is, no, you never heard the term wasoist. Oh, wasoist. <laughs> what an no, idiot. No, Millar went on to say this in an article about Elohim City about... Dennis Mahon. No, I don't know what he's done in his life. He seemed like a decent man to me. I agree with some of his thoughts. Not all of them. Not by a long shot. But I do agree with some of his thoughts. He sounds like someone who is just constantly getting his gums numbed by a dentist. <laughs> oh, 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 Mr. Ballard, what thoughts do you agree on? Oh, we all like a milkshake. And we all agree that the wastes should be separated and ice cream should be separated. I hate the mix of ice cream when you put the chocolate and the vanilla together. Oh, it's just man. a shame. I hate the swoo. That's one of the best uh, combos there is. And Mahan's girlfriend was a woman named Carol Howe. Those two met when Howe called Mahan's dial-a-racist hotline after she had what sounded like a minor confrontation with some black dudes at a party. Dial-a-racist? Dial-a-racist. That yeah. was the number. It was, <laughs> well, I'm not even going to say it. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a, a phone number that people could call to uh, report um, incidents with races other than white people. Bad experiences. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Carol Howe was a Tulsa debutante whose brand of rebellion was joining a white supremacist group and getting a big black swastika tattooed on her back. She started dating Mahan, but when she tried to leave, he raped her. She filed charges, which is when the FBI, looking for an informant to infiltrate right-wing extremist groups, recruited her. It's the best way to get a fucking uh, someone, uh, an informant. Ex-girlfriends. Yeah. Oh, sure. Now, she reconnected with Mahan in late 1994 and started reporting back what she was seeing and hearing. Apparently, Mahan was spending his time detonating homemade hand grenades and was planning to blow up a Mexican-owned video store, but the ATF sat on it. Look around there. It's got a Mexican name right on it. It's a video. (laughs) (laughs) It's video. No, video story. Some kind of Mexican talking, getting there, the damn Mexicans dancing with joy, celebration, drinking beers, having being relaxed. Celebrating, working hard, and selling, and supporting their families. I hate them damn videos, no race. <laughs> what a jacket. And when Mahan bragged about setting off a 500 pound ammonium nitrate bomb in Michigan, the ATF still did nothing. Now, how was just supposed to keep tabs on Mahan, but when she eventually made her way to Elohim City, she found Strassmeyer's boot camp and was told by the FBI to refocus on Strassmeyer, goofy or not. Honestly, mm. I saw a video of uh, Dennis Mahan when he was going through, he was doing training at the CSA, and it showed him firing various guns, and then he was, so he had a Dillinger, and he was struggling to put it on top of his head and covering it with his hat like he was trying to show that he could have a gun under his hat and he would put it on hat and it was sliding back and forth with his hat going and he kept trying to take off the hat and reveal the derringer at the same time and it looks like fucking it looks like a Chris Farley movie yeah it's brilliant 
Now, in December 1994, the same month that McVeigh and Fortier went to case the Mira building, Howe filed a report that Strassmeyer was planning to take action with assassinations, mass shootings, and bombings. That same month, Robert Millar instructed his troops in a fiery sermon to finally take action. Mm. Howe was also told that something was being planned for April, but she wasn't far enough into the inner circle to find out what exactly. In other words, the government had way way more reason to raid Elohim City than they had to raid Waco. Mahan had hand grenades, large explosions using ammonium nitrate, and violent rhetoric, while Strassmeyer, who was an illegal alien and could have been arrested at any time, was arming and training a combat force. And I heard he has guns under his hat. (laughs) You don't know what I got in my shoes. Guns. Feet. Mm. It's feet. My feet are Just gross, feet. though. They are gross. Okay. But because the ATF and the FBI were still reeling from the bad press of Waco, they recalled Carol Howe, declaring her an unreliable witness and just hoped that everything was going to work itself out. That's well, what I want out of my government agencies, hope. But honestly, <laughs> Carol Howe herself was was very unreliable. Uh, I would say uh, well, her she specifically. Was, she was be- contradictory, but a lot of her information was corroborated. Because she kept going back and forth, fucking Mahan and not. Because they got back together. The part mm-hmm. of it, when she came back as an informant, she was like around the area and hanging out and watching everything, still in his vicinity. But she he got her back. Mm-hmm. And so when they be- began to date again, she went off the radar. Mm-hmm. And then when they broke up again, she came back as started talking to the FBI. Yeah, maybe not the most trustworthy person. But she did have a fair amount of information. Her information about these uh, people was being corroborated by shit they already knew Mm. about these people. And the ATF director at the time, John McGaw, said in 2010 that the only reason why they didn't go into Elohim City was because the ATF hadn't been properly retrained after Waco and they weren't ready for a proper full-scale assault. And McGaw Mm. also acknowledged in 2010 that the the decision to not go into Elohim City might have cost the ATF their one slim chance to prevent Oklahoma City. But it must also be said that Howe never gave information about April 19th, 1995, specifically until the bombing had already happened. But also, these groups learned from Waco as well. And they Mm. learned how to cover their tracks a little bit more. And I think that's a part of it, too. The guys that are really in charge, I I always believe there's kind of a trickle-down of intelligence in these groups, where the guys that are in charge, like Millar, Ellison, they are actually very smart. As the the ranks get lower and lower, people get dumber and dumber. In the context of white supremacists. Yes. Yes. And so what I think that they did is they understand is that what you do is you hire dummies that don't know what they're doing, that you can pawn off. Lots of patsies. You Mm. have many patsies everywhere. You also have no fucking no proof no written proof no paper trails and so they did that they did that very well it would be very difficult for them to actually pull together the legal case to get the warrant to go into Elohim City and then once they do it how do you prosecute them if they hide all their fucking weapons there's an illegal German with guns under his hat well you got that guy but that's the thing you get that guy and then you got that guy and then you flip that guy no, he can't be flipped. Look at his teeth. Yeah. Well, I mean, that argument right there, we're going to get into later on in the episode because that is the exact same argument that the government used to not go after all these guys. Mm. And it is a shitty fucking argument. Yes, of course. My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Shaki Zabrowski. She shops all year thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it, but guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown. 
All right, give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the Aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do. And the memories keep cycling and I get emotional. And we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy. And that is not sad. That is celebratory. So you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse picks over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hi. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. That's one of my favorite things about it. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Now, personally, I'm in the middle of re-landscaping my yard. I like to do it myself because I called up a landscaper to see how much it costs and it was absolutely insane. Plus, I love dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt and I love planting things myself. And Fast Growing Trees has given me some wonderful plants that I can use. Like I got this uh, Texas sage, it's purple. I've dug up a whole bunch of horrible bushes and shrubs up in front of my window and in front of my house and put some purple Texas sage up there and it's going to thrive and it's going to look real good. And I don't even have to go to a nursery to buy it. It came to my house. Now, this spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEFT at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code LEFT at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code LEFT. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So let me ask you. Oh, questions. Yo, 
Y'all ready to get sexy? Oh, I don't know. I was in the contest of Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City. I woke yeah, up this morning. Ready to get sexy. Am I ready to get sexy like now? Sexy. I had a dream last night. Rose McGowan was in my dream. I was eating a bagel. Nude. This is true. I woke up. Ding, 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 hard. Was it the bagel or Rose McGowan that got you aroused? I don't know. I'm ready for the story. Okay. So in February of 1995, Timothy McVeigh was picked up as he was walking across a bridge near Bullhead, Arizona, by a man in a Ford Mustang. I don't want to think about what is about to happen. And McVeigh offered the guy five bucks to give him a ride to Kingman. The guy named Richard Rogers. Dickie Rogers. <laughs> he said he wouldn't take a dime. But he would be interested in a little fucking, as he Uh-oh. had been at a casino all night and was feeling, quote, a little horny. With something with, about you go to that slot machine and you pull that long pole and it's uh-huh. got the thick head on the top and then berries go whipping, whipping, whipping <laughs> past your face. This guy, without a doubt, had the ass gas or grass bumper sticker <laughs> with a Calvin and Hobbes pissing on like a Ford logo or something. Funny thing was, Rogers said he immediately recognized McVeigh from another roadside encounter he'd had the year before. Aren't you the centerfold, the July centerfold of Brush Cut Monthly? <laughs> mm, I'm flattered you remembered. Favorite things, talking about Waco. Loading my gun, <laughs> sucking dick. Now, the first time Rogers had picked up little Timothy McVeigh, Timothy took his dick out and asked Rogers if he wanted to party, which is slang for homosexual sex. Thank you, Marcus. Oh, thank, yeah. oh wow. So that's what all these Facebook invites are about? Interesting. <laughs> uh, Rogers said no the first time, but yes the second. And the two ended up in Rogers' trailer outside Kingman. When the trailers are rocking, do come a-knocking, because uh-huh. I am fighting a snake. <laughs> Now, the only thing that makes me think this story is true is that Rogers uh, said as soon as they got into the trailer, McVeigh immediately just started talking about Waco. Oh, no. That's a that's a total boner killer. He always does this. Not for when you're on the far right. I it's guess a boner so. fucking <laughs> feeder. I guess so. But when they finally got down to business, Rogers said McVeigh's throat and tongue action was, quote, incredible. Ugh, throat and tongue action. God. Four stars on Yelp. I would have given him five stars if he had made me Yelp. Again, I, Yelp is about yelling. I understand. They, the, the, I never want to think about this ever again. Actually, the thing was that the, uh, Rogers said that neither one of them uh, reached climax that night because they were just both too tired. Oh, I just it wasn't, don't really. It, I don't understand. You would go so far as to pay another weird militant man to have sex with you. Oh and no, you're this, not was gonna all, come? this was this all was free. free. He, this was, free. he refused payment. He, Henry. he refused payment. He's not a plastic patriot. You don't monetize love. <laughs> Now, in the morning, Rogers made McVeigh bacon and eggs. McVeigh left, and the two never had another experience aside from a couple of awkward run-ins at the grocery store. Oh, hey, hey, hey. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get around you to over here to the cucumbers. Hey, Tim? You know, my cart got a squeaky wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah me too. <laughs> I guess I could really use some lubricant. Man, a sale on pretzels? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, kind of like a bunch of legs all wrapped around each other in a trailer deep, deep, deep in the Ozarks. <laughs> anyway. Oh, anyway. Reader's Digest. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, not too long after that, McVeigh forged a driver's license at the 40A house using the alias Robert Kling so he could rent the rider truck he would eventually use for the bombing in Oklahoma City on April 19th. McVeigh chose Kling partly because he knew a soldier named Kling who kind of looked like him, but mostly 
Because Kling was short for Klingon, because if you'll remember, oh, McVeigh was a massive fucking nerd. Wow. What is going on? Because the Klingon's a warrior. Yeah. I understand. Worf. He is such Worf. <laughs> Worf was the true Worf. warrior. Talk. Casual homosexual Worf. <laughs> this is what we need football players in every community that would just bully Timothy McVeigh. No, on April 5th, McVeigh called Elohim City for just under two minutes, which we know for a fact because McVeigh used a calling card for all of his long-distance calls. We actually know quite a bit about the places that McVeigh called in the months leading up to the bombing. Because he had a calling card. Yeah. He used one of those cards where you, you pay it, and then you can use it at various payphones, so that's how they basically ping him everywhere he goes. Hmm. We know that he was probably at Elohim City. We know the fact that the uh, the all of these concepts, the idea of bombing a federal building, especially in Oklahoma City, specifically the Murrah Building, have been floating around Elohim City, mm-hmm. and he definitely had contact to Strassmeyer. They probably cased the Murrah building together. Do you think they kissed? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think Strassmeyer was tight. He needs something more gruff. I guess. And when McVeigh called Elohim City, Millar's daughter-in-law was the one who answered, and she told the FBI that McVeigh was looking for Strassmeyer. McVeigh told her that he was thinking of visiting soon, and Millar's daughter-in-law said that any friend of Andy's was a friend of Elohim City. Isn't that nice? Did I mention I'm African-American? <laughs> oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, yikes. Now, the reason why this call was significant was because it was made directly after McVeigh had called a rental spot in Havasu City near Kingman inquiring about a writer trip. It gets even more interesting when you take into account another call that was made from McVeigh to Elohim City right after McVeigh secured the Ryder truck rental in Junction City, Kansas. Now, it could be that McVeigh was calling Strassmar to update him on the progress of their mission, if Strassmar was indeed involved. Or it could be that McVeigh was just looking for a place to hide out after the bombing. However, McVeigh did once tell one of his defense lawyers that Elohim City was, quote, pretty fucking hardcore. And that cool. he and Strassmar were, quote, Brothers in arms, cool. literally in each other's arms. <laughs> So a few days after that second call, McVeigh was seen at a strip club in Tulsa called Lady Godiva's, which only has three stars on Yelp. She died by fucking a horse. <laughs> really? No. Lady Godiva. No, Lady Godiva rode a horse naked. And you're thinking of the Catherine, uh, the great urban legend that she died fucking a horse. They Marcus is very horses. serious about this. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who to believe, quite well, frankly. That's fake news. Believe me. I don't know. Believe me. I heard, Who's the one that does all the research here? I heard Lady Godiva had intercourse with a horse. See? That then <laughs> led to her inevitable death. And that's, that's how what you I know. make truth happen. Oh, the other thing about Lady Godiva's, though, is that they have a daily lunch special, and on Fridays, you can get a BLT for just five bucks. Wow. And who doesn't want a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich from a strip club? Tuesdays are quesadillas. Wow. Hello, hey. See how I make it here. I go over here. Name's Gunther. It's been so nice, so nice to see you around. You want a BLT? I'm just here for that, yeah. I could tell you know why. Because your lips kind of look like I, little strips of bacon, and that makes my... Okay. Look over here. First, I, I don't open up this loaf of bread using just my feet. Okay, I just want oh, the BLT. Oh, yeah. Now I get this slice of bread. Then the funny thing about you know, my little body. I'm going to come back here. for quesadilla too. No, no, no. I, I, you got to let me I make this sandwich for you. Well. Look, let me show you why they call me the octopus downstairs. <laughs> I take I really, off my big old like pants and you see how long my vagina is. BLT is kind of a healthy alternative Watch to this. a hamburger. Slap a tentacle. <laughs> on top of that pizza bread, dragging over. Yeah, yeah, this is how I get my squats in. I really. And then you got fried them bacon. Oh, my, oh, my other tentacle. My other tentacle's getting all burned up by the oil splits. It's, it's actually a really good sandwich. Thank you. You can't give me three 
<laughs> a stripper working that night specifically remembered McVeigh being there with an annoying bucktoothed German. Oh. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, Ben... But it's what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Don't address this to me. I'm just saying that, you, you know, they seem to have, a lot of times strippers have short-term memories. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, it's odd that a stripper would remember one customer out of the no doubt dozens that they had over the month of April 19th. I mean, if they're six foot seven and red fo- red-haired and just out there. I don't know. They, they, I think they want to forget most of the customers they see. I think so. Yeah. But here's audio from the stripper's dressing room captured the night that Timothy McVeigh was there. And I think we should say sex worker. They're not sex they're workers. They're not sex workers. They're, they're dancers. They're exotic uh, dancers. Strippers. Yeah, the strippers. They're not sex workers. Yeah, they're not jerking off always. If they, would, if they were jerking dudes off in the back room, then we would say stress oh, sex workers. Oh, okay. But right now, they're just exotic dancers. Fancy. They might be sex workers. They're though. strippers. I don't know. <laughs> it's Lady Godiva's. Oh, Lady Godiva. I heard it, she had intercourse Tulsa, with a horse. It is a Tulsa, Oklahoma strip club. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Yeah, over, the, you know what else is in Tulsa, Oklahoma? What? Bottom, the Bottoms Up Club. Mm. What happens there? Bottoms up. Bottoms up. Oh, that's where Polish people park their bikes. <laughs> that's what they say when Polish people are die, die they're bored with their asses sticking out of the grid. Well, here is a clip. This is the audio from the video surveillance footage that was in the stripper's dressing room. That I'm a very smart man. I said, you are. And he goes, yeah. And you're going to remember me. On April 1995, you're going to remember me for the rest of your life. Shit. What did she say there? She said, you're going to remember me because McVeigh sat down. McVeigh was getting a lap dance uh-huh. and he told her, I'm a really smart guy. Ugh. And she and then he went further saying on April 19th, 1995, you're going to remember me for the rest of your life. Interesting. Yeah, Honestly, so our strippers are the front lines of yeah. American intelligence because you can get so much information out of a man if you're dancing on his hard penis. I guess. I would. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, along with McVeigh and Strasmar was an olive skinned. Dark complected man who bore a strong resemblance to John Doe number two, Uh-oh. who will now finally make his appearance. God, I've been waiting for three episodes to talk about John Doe number two. Comes from a long line of John Doe's. His father was John Doe number one. <laughs> <laughs> so on April 17th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh went to Junction City, Kansas, checked into the Dreamland Motel, and traveled over to Elliot's body shop where he rented the Ryder truck he used in the bombing. Hmm. Now, as we said in episode one, when the axle from the Ryder truck was found in downtown Oklahoma City after the bombing, it was traced to Elliott's body shop in Junction City, Kansas, and a sketch was done of McVeigh. But according to the witnesses who described McVeigh, he was not alone. A second sketch was done of a man, still known to this day, only as John Doe number 2. All three witnesses who saw McVeigh that day all agreed that McVeigh was not alone, and they all agreed on the basic physical characteristics of JD2, namely that he was short, stocky, and dark-skinned. Now, the sketch mm. of John Doe number 2 that we know is actually all wrong. Nobody really knows quite how that sketch got to be the sketch of record, but the people who describe JD2 have said on multiple occasions that that's not the guy they saw. In fact, no one has ever really recognized the guy in that sketch. But when a second sketch of John Doe number two was done, more and more people started saying that they'd seen the man with the olive skin with McVeigh, particularly on the morning of the bombing itself. A property owner in Missouri, Sid McVeigh, Nichols, and JD2 showed up a couple of months before the bombing inquiring about a property with a cave, possibly a place where McVeigh could hide out after the bombing. 
Hmm. Interesting. He wanted to be a cave dweller? I guess so. It's a good place to hide out. The property yeah. owner described McVeigh with uncanny detail right down to a discolored eye tooth on the upper right side of his mouth and a filling McVeigh had showing through his enamel. Why is he looking at his mouth Yeah, so that much? seems like way intense information to have. And this guy, he actually did. Well, the investigator, uh, this was when the defense attorneys were going around, McVeigh's defense attorneys were going around trying to find out if there was anyone else involved in this. They found this guy, uh, and this hmm. guy had... I mean, he had a photographic memory. He described the eye tooth. He described the filling. And then the defense attorney went back to McVeigh and got him to smile. And when McVeigh Ooh. smiled, he saw that he had the discolored eye tooth and the enamel filling. I guess what it's did true. They do, just, I, did they just bring a bunch of construction workers into the uh, into the courtroom and just be like, smile. Hey, why don't you smile a little bit? <laughs> smile for me, smile. Can you yeah, imagine funny, watching it's... Timothy McVeigh forced to, to smile? Uh, How awkward that would be? No, he told the funny joke and he made him laugh. <laughs> You know, it is funny because when I do describe you, Marcus, I think about you. I mean, like he looks like a haunted man with monkey arms and a big butt. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. Oh, you're not gonna fucking bring in a mouthful of teeth like broken glass. See, only if you're smiling. But I don't. You don't normally smile. Not. I mean, you, I'm you, not doing this show. Yes, you can force a good smile. I've I, seen I can force a very good smile. Yeah. Now, JD2 gave his name as Robert Jacks, although that's proved to be an alias. However, the name Jacks is found written in Marifay Nichols' address book in a number of different spellings. She was she, she was learning the language. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Now, the FBI's explanation of JD2 was that the eyewitnesses at the writer shop, all three, confused the day on which they saw JD2. That JD2 was actually a guy named Todd Bunting who would come in the day after. My, fa- my grandfather changed the <laughs> name from Cunting. <laughs> Todd Bunting of the Bunting family. But the eyewitnesses maintain that the man in the second sketch is the person who was with Timothy Vey on that day, and Todd Bunting was a guy they all actually knew. My grandfather felt that the name Cunting would not allow his dentistry industry to really take off. That makes Bunting is a much better name. And interestingly, JD2 shares quite a few similarities with Richard Guthrie, the ARA bank robber we discussed last episode. Now, is Richard Guthrie possibly uh, another U- U.S. government plant, however, trying to force the bombing to happen from the inside. I'm not saying it's always sheep-dipped. It's never sheep-dipped. <laughs> they don't do this. No, it wouldn't no, really, there wouldn't do, be there any, is, there is. I don't think the FBI would dip. really want that to happen. In, Viet- in the Vietnam War, there was several members. Basically, they continued the Vietnam War for about a year with like a bunch of CIA operatives that were fighting with no identities fighting in Vietnam for a long time. That's yeah. kind of fun. I do think when you mention those things, which that actually might be accurate, you should have a McDonald's cup, and I will put change in it. <laughs> <laughs> so on April 16th, the day before the rental, Lee McGowan, the owner of the Dreamland Motel where McVeigh stayed in Junction City, said she heard voices coming from McVeigh's room. She also maintained that these men had access to the room independent of Mm. McVeigh, who was dropping off the getaway car in downtown Oklahoma City when McGowan heard them speaking. McGowan remembered she heard, in her words, a velvety male voice that she recognized from an earlier phone call to room 25 where McVeigh was Mm. staying. It sounded like he would have really good throat and tonsil action. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It's one of those voices. And she wasn't the only one. On April 15th, a Chinese food delivery boy named Jeff Davis. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Very good. Authentic. Now, son, with this name, no one will know that you're Chinese. (laughs) Jeff Davis said he brought food to the room and someone other than McVeigh answered the door. That man was short, stocky, mm. dark complexed, and loved dumplings. Actually, it was Mugu Gai Pan. Ooh, uh, that is good. I, I like that. I like Mugu. It is. It's a little slimy though. That's fine. Yeah. 
definitely a deep cut <laughs> on the menu. That's how I can tell. <laughs> I've never seen you be disgusted by food before, so that's interesting. So on April 18th, the day before the bombing, McVeigh said he met up with Terry Nichols at the storage locker they shared. The two loaded up all the bomb-making materials they gathered, and they drove it all out to Geary Lake State Park in Kansas. There, they allegedly mixed the material and wired up the whole operation in just a day, supposedly all by themselves. Hmm. After they were done, McVeigh said Nichols headed home while McVeigh slept with the bomb for the night. Did he, like, cuddle it? He slept in the cab and the bomb was in the bag. And then when oh, okay. he, he said when he got up the next morning, uh, he ate a whole bunch of spaghetti and then went to Oklahoma City. Oh, <laughs> every everybody who goes to Oklahoma City has got a belly full of spaghetti. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, he uh, he liked to eat MREs, uh, meals ready to eat. It's, these but fucking, he's not, I am sick of these militiamen. They all uh, live like shit. They think that this is the way to go. They, they, you have to, like, live some weird soldier's life mm-hmm. where it's just like, just go in your home. Go to get a burger. Get Burger King. Yeah, just make a, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Put it in a bag. Uh-huh. Bring it with you. Spaghetti's kind of good, though. Yeah. But the stories witnesses in Oklahoma City on April 19th told about what happened that day suggest a very different story besides just McVeigh and Nichols being involved in this. Hmm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says here I have to talk about something I need to get off my chest, and I guess I can share it here. I, I eat mayonnaise for fun. It's a hobby of mine. And it's an addiction. And it's a daily weight on my life. How much I need whipped egg whites and oil crammed into my veins. As soon as I wake up, and a lot of people carry around a lot of different stressors, big and small. Some people are presidents. Some people are soldiers. Some people have to eat mayonnaise, especially with hard-boiled eggs, which is what I eat for lunch. But I guess I should share that in therapy because therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And what I do is I just add eggs if I have mayonnaise left over. I just continue to add the eggs. But if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I hope they can help me. My God. I hope they can help me. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LastPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp! H-E-L-P dot com slash LastPod. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports, and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. And isn't that what matters most? Better writing means a stronger impact. Grammarly works across 500,000 apps and websites. You can't escape it. Like the ever-pervasing octopus of malice that is the NSA. Grammarly is watching your every move, making sure that you're doing it right. Data privacy and security are woven into the foundation of Grammarly, into the very essence of its nature. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner, and it helps your team make their point and move faster, because that's the key there. Work smarter, not harder. Yes, Grammarly. You know how many times it saves me from writing a long, rambling, one-sentence email at 4 o'clock in the morning to my beloved employees? 
makes me sound like someone who doesn't just have a BA in theater. All right. I was taught how to be a tree. I was not taught how to survive as an adult. All right. My job was to cry in front of a weird Southern man who just told me all sorts of weird stuff about my body. I didn't learn how to write. So thank you, Grammarly, because you're making me the boss I gotta be to motivate my team to get out there. Oh, man, you don't want to mess with them. Thanks, Grammarly. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free. Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors. It's a waste. Don't waste hours on apps. Besides appetizers, that's the kind of apps I like. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Did you know that empanada is already Spanish? I didn't. Thanks, Babbel. Did you know that burrito is already Spanish? Wow. I just got to learn all the rest. And eventually, I'm going to be eating downtown Mexico. Thanks, Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash left. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash left, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash L-E-F-T. Rules and restrictions may apply. The first sighting of the Ryder truck on April 19th was at around 8 a.m. At least 24 people saw the truck over the next hour, with many of them reporting it was in a convoy with the yellow Mercury Marquis, a brown truck, and a white sedan. Three witnesses said a man with a military cut accompanied by a man with olive skin driving a yellow Ryder truck asked them for directions to the Mura building that morning. Danny Wilkerson, the guy who ran the convenience store down the street from the Mura building, said mm-hmm. McVeigh came in around 8.40 a.m. and bought two Cokes and a pack of Marlboros, even though McVeigh was not a smoker. Wilkerson remembered this encounter because of the Ryder truck parked outside. Maybe he did that because of Bad Boys, the film Bad Ooh. Boys, where he saw them lighting a cigarette walking away from the explosion. Oh. Yeah. They make him look real cool. Or did he buy it for uh, uh, John Doe number two? That's what we're saying. Yeah, that's, that's what we're saying. Yeah, that's, that's what exactly we're saying. That, that, that yeah. is actually the, I also the, thought it learning. could be because of <laughs> Bad Boys. Oh, oh. The, you know, Godiva. She has, get fucked uh, by a horse. Huh, isn't that weird? <laughs> no, Wilkerson asked McVeigh when he saw the rider truck if McVeigh was moving in, and McVeigh said he wasn't. And when, when McVeigh walked out to the truck, Wilkerson said he saw another guy waiting in the cab. None of the eyewitnesses, nor the other 19 people who saw McVeigh either with a group or with at least another guy that morning, were called to trial because the FBI determined that every single one of them was mistaken. Now, remember, mm-hmm. we have been through this before with Columbine, when they, people saw multiple shooters that were not just the two boys. This is the thing that does happen. There is a, such a thing as like uh, imagining and piecing together different witness accounts and it all, yeah, it all brings together. But the problem is is that what you're looking at is over several days showing that he is with multiple people. Whether yeah. he's mm-hmm. renting the truck, whether he is uh, putting together the bomb. I, I feel like that there is a 
a bunch of loose evidence yeah. that can show that he at least had a group supporting him mm-hmm. and at least had like a team around him that were going to try to get him to the getaway car that they weren't going to he was going to basically set off the explosive himself well mm-hmm. that seems very plausible it's a huge bomb and yeah. no way uh, he and Nichols could just do it alone well I mean it's there is actually evidence there was a guy who saw the yellow rider truck at Geary Lake on that day yes, so we do family know, yeah a family. saw the two of them together him and Nichols up together they were basically building the bomb yeah yeah, they were building the bomb up there, but we don't know if anybody gave them instructions or if Nichols and McVeigh were just putting the finishing touches on the bomb. There's a lot of unknowns here. And, it, you know, and it could be that all these witnesses, uh, they heard reports of John Doe number two, and they concocted a story in their head about seeing McVeigh with a dark skin. Gentlemen, that perhaps, way. but the convoy of the brown truck, white sedan and yellow marquee that wasn't reported at the time. And multiple people told the FBI that they saw him together. And multiple people saw this convoy struggling to get to their destination. Also, it was his yellow marquee, right? That was his That was his car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know that for a fact. We know the yellow if, marquee was his car. If he is driving the Ryder truck, who is driving that car? Exactly. Somebody's Ooh. driving the car. Yeah. And it's a big, obvious, gross... Like, grossly yellow, all fucked up. A 1978 Mercury Marquis is a gigantic fucking car. Yeah, it sticks out, so Mm -hmm. somebody's helping him. Who's behind the wheel? Yeah. And the people that saw them trying to struggle to their destination, they saw those cars driving in and out of the underground parking garage below the Mira building. Because this is when he realized that Mm -hmm. he did not measure the goddamn parking garage entrance and he couldn't get it through. Yeah, he couldn't get... The rider truck was too tall. He tried driving it in there. They had this whole big plan, and then they realized that the truck was just too high. They had they had neglected uh, to do their due diligence on possibly the most important part of the entire operation. Somebody Unbelievable! Had one job. <laughs> one job. <laughs> now the backup plan maybe was to park the truck in the alley between the federal courthouse and the old post office building. We know this because an Oklahoma state trooper saw the truck pull into the alley and back out again when they saw it was blocked by a U.S. Marshal Service truck. Hmm. As Andrew Gumble wrote in Oklahoma City, what the investigation missed, one can only imagine these dipshits frantically trying to decide what the hell to do when their great master plan failed. It is, uh, it is just a bunch of dunces trying to pull this off. Yeah, and, but, of course, we all know what they ended up doing. You know, they parked it in the handicapped spot on the building's north side. But witnesses saw both the marquee and the brown truck on either side of the rider truck. They also witnessed a woman with long blonde hair waving the truck into position who very well could have been ARA bank robber Pete Langen in drag. Imagine wow. if he showed up in full in full costume. Like, he was, like, dressed as a woman, being a woman, and you, they never... Never saw that before, and also he just shows up on the big day. Pete, what you doing? I'm finally me. <laughs> on today, <laughs> of all days, fuck it, go. We ain't got time to go. deal with this. Fuck it. <laughs> now the main witness who was watching from the fourth floor of a nearby building made note of. The 1979 Mercury Marquis, because that guy had a Mercury Marquis just like it. And so he actually, it wasn't one of those things where he remembered later, like, oh, there was a Mercury Marquis there. He remembered looking down, seeing a yellow Mercury Marquis, thinking about days of yore. Probably like, what a piece of shit car that is. (laughs) I'm glad I don't own a fucking Mercury Marquis anymore. Uh, But he also (laughs) noticed, like, there was a rider truck parked in the handicap spot, because that's a pretty big dick move. Right. Then... There was Dana Bradley, the woman who had to have her leg sawed off mm. at the knee after being trapped in the rubble. She said when she was walking into the building, she saw a guy with olive skin wearing a jacket get out of the truck and quickly walk away. And yet another person, a truck driver named Rodney Johnson, 
Had to. Uh, s- I love it. That's a great name for a truck driver. <laughs> great name. He had to swerve to miss two people who had walked out into the road from his right. Hmm. One he identified as McVeigh. The other he identified as a stocky man with olive skin wearing a jacket. He wow. said to the to his left was a brown truck. To his right was the rider truck. Again, none of this stuff was made public. These people were not contaminated by media coverage. These sightings were all done independently and none of them, aside from Dana Bradley's, were made public until just a few years ago when new documents were finally released. A lot of these, this didn't actually come from news reports. These came from FBI files that were finally released in 2010. Now, what is the point of not releasing this information to the public earlier? Is it just to make it a simple case? Yes. Yes. The whole point is to just get Timothy McVeigh Right. Uh, kill him by the death penalty so the case is over. So there's right. closure. And then also, technically, you are not feeding the uh, the far right. Yeah. I think there's a part of it, too, where it's if they made it a big attack on the far right, they thought that they were going to incite more and more mm-hmm. of this, which in the end is wrong. In the end, they just they bolstered them. And they'll, they, they technically yeah, that's a did. Tricky thing, though. It did take a lot of. Uh, wind out of their sails, especially when it came out just how many kids that were murdered in the mm-hmm. explosion. Yeah, of course. And uh, it did fuck up, but technically it just made them go deeper underground. And now they're, now they're there, and now they're electing people. They regrouped. Uh, they, yeah. ab- they absolutely regrouped. They went legit. Yeah. So after hmm. lighting the fuse, the group got into their respective getaway cars and sped away. But there's the question of the marquee. If there was such a large group, why was McVeigh alone in a car that had no license plate and was sure to get pulled over? Well... There are a couple of possible explanations here. One, McVeigh might not have meant to drive the car for very long. If he was working with Langan and Guthrie, he would have been playing by bank robber rules. <laughs> See, a lot of times when a bank robbery is committed, the perpetrators use a drop car, meaning they leave in one car, drive it to a second location where their real getaway car is parked, and they leave the drop car behind. The marquee could have been just such a car. Also, he was probably making his money robbing banks for a period of time with the ARA. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly the type of training that he's already got. Mm-hmm. Or, two, McVeigh meant to be caught. He was the sacrificial lamb, the one who would spread their message to the world, the spokesman. And when you compare McVeigh to the rest of these assholes, he was the obvious choice. He's a perfect patsy. Yeah. He yeah. was a clean-cut war hero, he was fairly well-spoken, and he had no criminal record whatsoever aside from a few traffic tickets. So he'd look like right. a good American soldier, like a, 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 the head of the Patriot mm-hmm. movement. Yep, and if anyone out of that group of dickheads could sound even halfway reasonable, it would have been McVeigh. All the rest of them, what, are you going to mm-hmm. put Strassmeyer out front? No, with his big teeth. Yeah, put Strassmeyer out there. No, he's not camera ready. No, Timmy right. McVeigh is camera ready. <laughs> Terry Nichols has got all the fucking best. He looks like, Terry Nichols looks like the main nerd from Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> no, Terry Nichols yeah. has, he has those little beady oh, eyes. Uh, he's constantly nervous. Uh, you can't I mean, put Langan or Guthrie out there. They're fucking bank robbers. Yeah, Dennis did, Mahan is a big fat nightmare. Right. Uh, fucking the Millar guy, talks like Elmer Fudd. Uh-huh. Yeah. McVeigh's the only one they have. He's the well, Jim Parsons. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, in this bizarre world of local yokels, he is the dreamboat, he's I also, suppose. In terms of articulate, he's been coached. Yeah. He knows exactly what to say. He's been listening to these fucking idiots for so long. You yeah. don't think Millar and Ellison weren't piping literally the exact words, what to say as soon as you're caught, the things, the literature he had? Mm-hmm. And, and then he was obsessed with Patrick Henry already. And then when you found on his dashboard, he had an envelope of documents mm-hmm. that yeah. were filled with, you know, Patrick Henry. 
Henry, various different uh, far right writers. All like like he had his weird like thesis statement ready to go. And sure. the thesis statement uh, that's also a part of the drop car theory is that a lot of people thought that McVeigh was going to drive the car, uh, leave it, uh, and then leave that little envelope of articles and whatnot for police to find, essentially taunting them. Yes. Hmm. But also the thing is about McVeigh is that McVeigh wanted this. You can tell in every interview he gave that he loved every second of his notoriety. When everyone saw him for the first time during that first perp walk, you do not see the face of a person scared shitless like Nichols was when he was arrested. You see the face of a stoic soldier who had done his duty. Which shows yeah. like the unflappable and scary arm of the CSA. Like the idea of sewing someone being like, we, we are here to start the revolution. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, if he ran out of things to say, he could always charm people with his Star Trek knowledge <laughs> and with all of the different sort of things. He, skills. Yeah, he could talk about that. Incredible. They say incredible. incredible. <laughs> Great throat and tongue action. Now, there is definitely marquee related evidence to suggest McVeigh acted alone, though. There's the note that suggests the car was dropped days earlier, and the license plate that was missing was stashed in the storage locker where McVeigh and Nichols stored the explosives. But that's the big rub with this oh. case. So I much the big rub with Timothy McVeigh and and that guy. Yeah, that dude. Rich, yeah, Richard Rogers. Yeah. Richard Rogers, the big rub. <laughs> See, so much of this evidence can be interpreted either way. You can either interpret it as McVeigh being an idiot, or you can interpret it as McVeigh setting himself up to be the lone wolf. Now we would know for sure if there were more people involved in the bombing and especially if more people were in the truck with McVeigh had the security cameras on the northwest and northeast corners of the Mira building been working but as a cost cutting measure the cameras were hooked to nothing and hadn't been functional for 10 years Years. Well, how much part money of, did they save? How much money did that? Was they said eighteen grand in the end was all the fixes they didn't make. No, the 18, no, eighteen grand was uh, the construction cost. This was probably I don't know forty bucks. Oh my god! But they uh, also this is again where the conspiracy arm takes a hold when people say that the government did that on purpose. No, because the government the was trying was to doing, save money because they're a bunch of idiots. Yeah, yeah. and that's what, no, that's when you talk to the guy who was in charge of security and said that he had been screaming for years to get the cameras fixed. What nerd? He's being annoying. You got to learn how to sell it. Well, that's the thing is that you know there were, of course, rumors of the footage being suppressed because uh, there was a report that the Secret Service had made saying, like, okay, like we found the footage from the Mira building, but that was done in error. They thought that they had footage of the Mira building, and they do not because this is such a huge, fast-paced operation. There were hundreds of people working on this case all at once. But the thing is, like, as Gumbel writes, you know, in Oklahoma City, the incompetence here is a far greater crime. Hmm. than the cover-up because there right. was chatter among these right-wing groups for months leading up to it. They knew something was There's wrong. also been the dialogue yeah. on the internet that show, that obviously takes certain footage that has been found from around the Murrah building in order to say, like, look, you could see here, like, basically pointing out that there were multiple people in the cab. The problem is there's no time signatures. There's yeah. no way to know. And also, I watched two different documentaries, Terror from Within, which is fucking incredible, it's which great. we basically build this entire timeline of the white power groups helping Timothy McVeigh set up the Oklahoma City bombing, and then there's another one called The Secret Life of Timmy, Timothy McVeigh, which is the complete conspiracy one, and they both use the same footage mm-hmm. to say different things, one proving that he's a lone warrior, and one proving that he's a part of the U.S. government as a sheep-dipped do officer. They, <laughs> do they get into how he earned the nickname The Rub? <laughs> <laughs> Man's Tim The Rub McVeigh. Wide palms. Yeah. 
Well, at any rate, the FBI either ignored or half-heartedly explained away most of the evidence we've talked about today. See, they didn't want to uncover a conspiracy. They wanted a straightforward, mm-hmm. no-nonsense conviction, and they got two as Nichols turned himself in after just a couple of days because Timothy McVeigh had written down uh, in the Dreamland Motel Register as his address, he wrote the address of the Nichols family farm. Jesus Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. I could just, just couldn't think of another address. Different kind of numbers that aren't real. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, I, dang. I can't be making oh, up addresses all no. day. Well, the 1988 sedition trial we mentioned in the last episode also had a lot to do with this. See, the FBI had decided that if they ever had another case against white supremacists, they would go for the slam dunk and not involve too many people. They were afraid if they went for all they would get none, just as they had before. And there was, and this was against every instinct of every FBI agent to focus on just one guy. There were plenty of FBI agents out there crying to be let loose. Because they are very right. thorough. The one thing about the FBI thorough. is that they fucking, they are very dogged. They're they the go after Bureau every- of Investigation. Yes. That's what they do, investigate. But the higher-ups wouldn't go for it, hmm. even though there were so many guys saying, please, please, let like this guy Bob Ricks. Like Bob Ricks had spent most of his career chasing white supremacists, but for some reason the higher ups hmm. just wouldn't let him loose. See, it's almost unheard of for the FBI to ignore evidence that could lead him to bigger fish, but that could have led him to another Waco or, or a Ruby Ridge yeah. or a Ruby Ridge or another failed sedition trial. And it's more egg in their face, and then the more more weird bad PR they get, the harder it is for them to do other things within the government because, again, the mm-hmm. government has to make political decisions, mm-hmm. and so if you don't have pol- the, the political movement on your side, there's there's not many things that you can get done. Right. Mm-hmm. And the FBI tried its hardest to convince all the witnesses who said they saw McVeigh with another man to change their story. Some did and were put on the witness stand. Others didn't and weren't. Hmm. Now, again, There is no direct evidence that McVeigh was ever in Elohim City at any point. But it has been strongly suggested by a number of people, both in the far right and in law enforcement, that he was. Because you remember, he also called Cause, which is essentially the white power ACLU. It is a group of lawyers. Someone called in asking what to do about this bombing, whether or not they should bomb this building or not. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was another clue. There's another sidebar of this whole world where it's like he was also trying to get their legal team involved. Mm -hmm. It's a small world. This white uh, supremacist world. I mean, they have their their own little weird ecosystem going. Yeah, because they learned it from the Turner Diaries, because it sets it up within the Turner Turner Diaries of how militias should communicate to Mm -hmm. each other. But neither the far right nor law enforcement has admitted that McVeigh had help in this whole thing for one reason. None of them want blood on their hands, specifically the blood of 19 children. After McVeigh was arrested and tried, the jury deliberated for three and a half days before convicting McVeigh on all counts. In trying to save McVeigh's life, the best anyone could say about him came from Michael Fortier. He said, Honestly, if you don't consider what happened in Oklahoma... Tim is a good person. Yeah, but we're mostly here for that Oklahoma City bombing thing. <laughs> yeah, then he so. is a naughty, naughty, he's naughty boy. The best yeah. thing I could say is, great throat action. <laughs> and after that statement, uh, it took the jury about three hours to condemn McVeigh to death. Still seems long to me, quite frankly. It does. It's yeah. just like, 
do it right Can there. we just do it here? Yeah. yeah. Just like, maybe it was good food they were eating. I don't know. So on June 11th, 2001, Timothy McVeigh was put to death by a lethal injection. Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years for his part in the saga, and Terry Nichols received a sentence of life in prison at the Colorado Supermax facility where he remains to this day. Hmm. Richard Guthrie hung himself in prison. Pete Langan is doing life after a dramatic shootout with the police. Dennis Mahon is still giving dumb shit interviews. Elohim City still plugging along. It is around, and they are fucking getting dumber. And Andy the German is back in Germany. Having been smuggled out of America through Mexico after the FBI started asking questions about him. He said he moved back because Oklahoma had become, quote, stressful. (laughs) That would make sense. That's why a lot of people leave. A lot of Germans leave because of the stress. I've always heard that about Oklahoma City, the stress level. Oklahoma, Elohim City, real stressful place. Oh, Yeah. yeah. Now, so far, not a single other arrest besides... Nichols, Fortier, and McVeigh has been made regarding the events of April 19th, mm. 1995, and it's starting to look like there never will be. I gotta say, Michael Fortier, uh, that 12 years is light. That is yes. a light sentence because they do know he's complicit in the mass tragedy. I well, feel like that's a little bit too uh, light of a sentence. Well, they well he turned state's evidence. Oh, he, oh Michael, I see. So Michael, he, he Michael, he flipped. Michael Fortier, okay, yeah, Michael right. Fortier was the star witness against Timothy McVeigh. So what do you mean? I'm like the star witness? Yay! <laughs> he was the Lucille Ball of the witnesses. Wow. So I think we've all learned wow. a lot today. That is uh, fascinating stuff. There's no way uh, that Timothy McVeigh acted alone, mm-hmm. and it, it's all that community. No. That was Again, uh, great. So, the so onion. There, peeling back the onion. Peeling mm-hmm. back the onion. Hey, guys, so let's just remind you out there. It's like if you feel like really proud about something, like dial it back before you murder a bunch of people. Dial There's it no back. There's no way to be that proud. Dial it back. <laughs> yeah. uh, but this is where, where rhetoric, uh, you know, when it actually turns to violence, it's very difficult for the FBI and the CIA uh, to know when that's actually going to happen. Yeah. So this is It's tricky stuff. Well, and it I, is too I, bad yeah, that they were, ideas, like, licking their wounds from Waco and Ruby Ridge. But, you wonder if they would have just had a little bit more political incentive to actually stop this stuff. But also, ideas can't be illegal. We cannot start shutting down one idea because then oh, the, then how do you do thought crime? When this thing, this went start? far beyond ideas. Of course. They had homemade grenades. They had ammonium nitrate. I there was an illegal not arguing <laughs> this. Yeah, I yeah, understand. Yeah. No, no, but that no of course, we're, we, we are, of course, not... Um, Wow. Advocating for the legislation against ideas or anything like that. But in this case, the ATF, they didn't go in for one simple reason. It was cowardice. I mean, yeah. that, wow. that's what it is. That was the reason why the, they did not go in because they were afraid that Waco was going to happen again. They were afraid mm-hmm. that they were not good enough. And this is big boy shit. And yeah, that's what this degree, is. They're, they're, it's, a, it's supposed to be hard. They're not wrong to some degree. It would have been, who knows how it would have gone. It would have been very they, difficult. It would have blown up. If we, yeah, can you it imagine? We, 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 we might just do an episode on it. Elohim City, or however the hell you're pronouncing Elohim. it, Elohim City, had they gone in there and had a huge firefight, who, what reality would that, would that have created? A bunch of people you would have died. A bunch yeah. of people would have died on both sides. It would have been a big fucking gigantic clusterfuck, and, yeah. and it was very difficult to figure out how do you pull yourself out. There's because really once no you good fucking, decision. Once you push the button... Now the, the machine's going. Like right. once you're in there, now it's you're going to deal with the reverberations. And then what if they decide to still blow up gigantic federal buildings yeah. after the raid? I mean, after you raid Elohim City, after that you get Bull Shoals Lake, Arkansas. I mean, sure. I mean, that's what their fucking job is. We they can't just say they can't just sit back and hope everything's going to work out all well, right. That's because true. they also tried that six years later in the lead up to 9/11, like with uh, Osama bin Laden when Susan Rice told Bill Clinton not go she after him. Yeah. They pulled back and they hoped that everything was going to work out okay, and yeah. it fucking didn't because it well, never. You know ever what? I'm just you saying, know what though, they should have gotten though. 
if we could have just sent them Stephen Urkel, Jaleel oh, White, he would have done, and a he great, just could have charmed a bridge. I agree, a bridge. He is a bridge. He is a bridge. Um, all right, well, great episodes. Um, thank mm. you so much for listening. Let's see, what, anything we want to plug here, Marcus? Uh, we are coming to uh, Milwaukee this Woo! week. We're going to be in uh, Nashville next week. We're going to be in Montreal the week after that. That's the Just for Last Festival. Go get your tickets for that. Last pod. Oh, and then we've yeah. got. We're coming to North Carolina. We're coming to Omaha. We're coming to Pittsburgh. Uh, we're coming to Toronto. Uh, we can finally announce that we're going to be a part Part of the San Francisco Outside Bounds Festival, yeah. which is going to be awesome. super Queens fucking cool. Queens of the Stone Age, man. Yeah. New fucking Queens. Metallica's playing too. Metallica, right? oh, that's so awesome. Gorillas, that's going to be cool as shit. Uh, I'm going to meet Do- Lars. Doctor I want to meet Lars. Doctor Octagon. Oh, I love Doctor Octagon. Oh, it's going to be so fucking cool. I seriously doubt they're going to let us in with musicians. I, no, definitely they won't. No, we, <laughs> we will be recorded off and, and netted into the podcast tent. Do you remember yes. during the, the SLC Comic Con about how far we were kept from Jason Momoa? We oh. were not allowed with him. And, I don't know, 40 feet of him. Yes. But yeah. I, I stared at him long enough where I, I felt too. like I talked mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. yeah. And if you guys uh, want uh, any and all ticket information for that, just go to lastpodcastontheleft.com and all of that stuff is there. That's it. Our, our Just for Laugh show is at 3 p.m., which is prime for we us. We got Thursday and Friday. Th- so Thursday. if so you come can't out make to that. 3 p.m. on Thursday, then you can make <laughs> 3 p.m. on fucking And Friday. don't forget, oh. it is Just for Laughs. So if you even think about not laughing, <laughs> remember what you're just there for. The yeah. Montreal yeah. secret police will just take you to get poutine. <laughs> and it's a punishment there. It is a punishment. So make sure you follow us on Twitter at Henry Loves You, at Marcus Parks, at Ben Kissel. Follow us on Instagram at Dr. Fantasty, at Marcus Parks, at Ben Kissel, the number one. Ooh. And follow Last Podcast on the Left on all of it at LP on the Left. Yes, and thanks uh, for all of our Patreon subscribers. You have all made this possible, and we mm-hmm. really appreciate it. Yeah, and if you, uh, you guys want to give to our Patreon, uh, go to patreon.com uh, slash last podcast on uh, the left. Sorry, we can't do it again. We're still in Los Angeles. Yep. We did two episodes in two days, two gigantic episodes in two days uh, so uh, yeah we still don't have our printouts from uh, Travis over in New York City but we'll get back to the shoutouts next week I promise you I will butcher your name next week don't worry about it it's mm-hmm. there don't you worry about it hail Satan hail yourselves hail Gene hail me let's oh, do a Magustalations oh, thank you yeah Magustalations the mouth action that you just used to say <laughs> Magustalations was incredible <laughs> god For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all hand-picked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix.